Good morning, friends. Grace and peace to the uninitiated. We're in a summer series. It's a few weeks long. It's called The Fight of Your Life. And you'll know if you've been here or been able to listen online, the big idea of this series is, how about this? Instead of fighting with the most important people in your life, you would fight for them. And in week one, uh, by the way, God's called us to be fighters, not to live in passivity or apathy or withdrawal, but to, to initiate and to be fighters for what's most important, for who is what who is most important in our lives. Week one, we uh, set before you a sermon uh, entitled the Fighting for Your Marriage. And then in week two, and I thank you for the response of some of you letting me in on your life. We looked at the fight uh, for your kids. And then last week, my guy, uh, you can't have him, he's my guy, Nick Crawford, uh, preached uh, the fight for your heart. The heart is the seat, it's the center. According to Proverbs 4.23, it's the wellspring from which life flows. You got any life flowing out of you? Well, that's the heart. And so on Father's Day, Nick delivered this message, the fight for your heart. And I listened to it online when I was in Flagstaff, Arizona, or maybe I was standing on a corner in Winslow, Arizona. Either way, uh, I listened to Nick preach, and it was a good one. This morning, I want to talk to you about the fight for your friends. And I want us to start and stay in Proverbs 18.24. If you have a Bible in front of you, you can turn there. It's one verse. We're going to focus, hone in on it. Proverbs 18.24, and it says this. I bet some of you have heard it. One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Can we leave that up for a moment? A lot of English translations, most of you know I preach most often from the ESV. This is the NIV as you see. But most English translations say one who has many friends or numerous friends. And the the idea there is you can have so much breadth in life, you can have so many shallow connections that they really aren't reliable. Now, that was said a long time ago in a culture far from ours in so many ways. And how much truer do you think this is today for us in a world where social media is so ubiquitous, in a world where celebrities, we have such rapt fascination with celebrities. A celebrity from many years ago, a guy named Fred Allen that only people my age and older uh, have heard of. I'm trying to look at some of our older people. But uh, Fred Allen said this about uh, having many friends. A celebrity is a person who works hard all of his life to become well-known and then wears dark glasses to avoid being recognized. A little irony there, huh? And what was said uh, probably two and a half, three decades ago by this uh, former celebrity, former famous person, is what Solomon was writing about in Proverbs 18. To have many friends, to have uh, unreliable friends is to soon come to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now we want somebody to stick with us, don't we? Last night I officiated a wedding at Galloway United Methodist Church, Jackson's original Christian congregation. I sound like I'm doing a commercial for them. Uh, don't go there, come here. But anyway, beautiful, beautiful building. I like our stained glass a lot better, but it's just a really fascinating building. Y'all been to Galloway, just a lot of history, and they do such good things as our church ministers to people here in a neighborhood that needs it, so they do, feeding 100-plus homeless people a day. And at this wedding, when I was marrying Victoria and Matthew, I had a little scripture reader, and Victoria's a, she's a teacher at Brandon Elementary, and she had one of her, I would say her favorite student, read scripture. He read from 1 Corinthians 13. He read from Psalm 40. You two made a song out of Psalm 40. And he, he read from Lamentations 3. But just a little guy, and I want to be respectful when I say this, but kind of a skinny, maybe scrawny kid. He wore glasses, and he just looked like a guy that would dominate the script's spelling bee. And 
he was, it was like an eight to ten minute portion of the wedding at Galloway. And if you, you know the, the sanctuary, like the balcony is not there, just there, but it wraps all the way around. So it's sort of an intimidating stage. John, you know what I'm talking about. It's an intimidating stage to stand on. And this little guy was hanging out with me an hour before the wedding. And I noticed it took me ten minutes. I'm not the brightest bulb. And I noticed everywhere I was going, he was going. I'd walk down the hall to see the bride. He was right there. I'd go see the groom. He was there. I'd walk and check with the sound guy in the balcony. He was following me. Everywhere I was going, he was sticking with me. He was a new friend that was sticking really close to me. And it occurred to me that without him saying it or wanting to say it, he was nervous. He was thinking of standing up behind a music stand with those verses and reading in front of all those people. He was asking me questions. Do you think the microphone's going to work? Do you think the balcony's going to be full? You know, he was asking questions. He just... He needed somebody big around him. He needed somebody like me, an old bald guy wearing a clerical robe. And he just felt like I knew what I was doing, right? That I wasn't nervous. And he just stuck with me. And you know, we all kind of need that, especially when we're young. If you're about to take on something, if you've got something staring at you tomorrow or this week or in the fall, and it's big, a transition, a new opportunity, and people are watching and you want to succeed, you're, you're nervous, aren't you? And you want somebody that'll stick with you. You want somebody that will kind of show you the ropes and stay close to you. We all need that. We need a friend who can stick with us. We don't live in a very sticky society, though, do we? We live in a transient one. We live in a disposable one. We live in one where we don't forgive one another and bear with one another. And the slightest provocation, the smallest little hint of conflict, and we check out. Why? Because we've got a lot of friends. we got many, many numerous friends. But are they reliable? What you need is somebody that will stick with you. Pretend that you're in middle school, which is sort of like purgatory, but pretend that you're in middle school and you're going to a new school and a new town and you show up on the first day. What are you thinking? You walk into the classroom or the cafeteria. What's going through your mind? What's racing through your mind as an eighth grader? You're awkward. You're in middle school. You're not thinking about your grades or your classes or your future academic career. No, you're thinking of one question and it's haunting you. Who will be my friend? Now, put yourself in that scenario. Imagine that. Like, that's real, isn't it? Like, that's a haunting question, an important one. But that's in you. It was in you then, and it's in you now, and it will be in you. Who will be my friend? When you read Proverbs 18.24, and you see that one who has unreliable friends will soon come to ruin, it begs the question, doesn't it? Do you have a reliable friend? Even a more important question I submit to you today, are you a reliable person? Something in us longs to be reliable, but there is a reliability deficit. When you were young, you and I, we quoted a poem, didn't we? Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. When would you say that? You wanted someone to believe that you were reliable, that you weren't telling a lie. Now, who thought that up, right? May I... May I violate the sign of the cross? May I perish? May I have a needle stuck into my eyeball? Who thought that up, right? But there's something in us that says, you can trust me. And so we recite formulas like that. Now, we change them as we grow older. But do you ever find yourself saying, well, honestly, well, trust me this time. Well, the truth is, right, that you could be subconsciously speaking from a deficit. You could be a person 
that's struggling to be reliable and you're going and taking an extra measure. You're reciting something to say, you can believe me, trust me on this one. Proverbs 18, 24. If your friends are unreliable, you're soon going to come to ruin. But there is a friend. There's a friend that sticks closer to a brother. Proverbs has nine verses that talk about friendship. It says wisdom that is our friend. It says that the, the, the wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. In other words, a reliable friend will tell you what you need to know. You can't be reliable without this word. And some of you are phobes when it comes to this. You can't be reliable without commitment. Now, weddings themselves give us a glimpse of what commitment is about in our culture today. A wedding is never about flowers or cards or clothes or music. It's all about a promise. In fact, most of us do weddings with a public record. It's a way for us to stand there and to say, you are my people, you surround me, and I want you now to help me, to come around me, to mark this moment, and to remind me to live up to the promise that I have made. It used to be an ancient tradition in many cultures for the officiant of a wedding to say, if there is any reason for this man to not marry this woman, then what? What's the next line? Speak now or forever hold your peace. Anybody been to a wedding where they've actually recited that? I mean, there's really very few hands. It's probably years ago. The only time it's done today in our culture is in the movies. And it seems like Lifetime Channel movies, and it seems like that there is some reason. There's a dramatic revelation, and the bride runs out of the chapel, right? There is some reason. I have a friend who officiated the wedding of his daughter. Her name was Lauren. This was in California. And he, as he presided over this wedding, he decided that he would ask the question. He would ask the question to this packed house, and he had a plant. He had a friend in the back of the room who stood up and said aloud, hey, I'm her probation officer, she's violated parole, and there are serious reasons why she should not marry. He thought it was hilarious, but he forgot to tell the groom's family about the joke. and They didn't think it was so hilarious. Commitment is something that we're called to make. And we see it in the vows of a wedding. It's a person looking at another and saying, I'm yours from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, or poor, in sickness and in health. I take thee, I stand with you, and no matter what we endure, we're going to do it together. It's a picture of commitment. But for commitment phobes, there are three things I want to tell you this morning when we surrender, the three things we do surrender when we commit ourselves to another person. This could be marriage. It could be any friendship, any commitment that you make. You surrender, one, you surrender our freedom. We surrender our freedom. We surrender our individuality. And we surrender our control. So it's easy to think, oh, I'm less of a person. I can't, if I make a commitment to someone or something, I can't do what I want to do. And for some of us, that's the driving force of our lives, being able to do whatever we want to do free as a bird. We can go anywhere, no constraints. Years ago, we had friends who lived down the street from us, and they would often ask us, hey, you want to come over for dinner tonight? 
And we were close. We really appreciated them and all the free food they offered our way. Can we bring anything? No, 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 just come, just come, just come. But oftentimes when they would ask me, uh, Susan would, was more willing to oblige, but I kind of held back. And she's like, wow, 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 what's going on? And I remember thinking there was sort of something lurking beneath the surface of what if I get a better offer? What if a game's on? What if someone comes over to our house spontaneously, right? There's something about us that says, don't commit. Don't commit. Because when you commit, you're losing options. And that's a real fear for a whole group of people known as men. (laughs) We lose our freedom. We lose our individuality. And we lose our control. Can I tell you this morning, because I love you, I want to tell you a myth and a truth about commitment and about our fear of making a commitment. Here's a myth. The myth is this. Avoiding commitment is the pathway to freedom. Here's the truth. Commitment makers and commitment keepers experience a freedom that commitment avoiders will never know. Can I get an amen on that? Anybody? All right, so I've said this before, man, some of the things that feel weighty and heavy in my life are the very commitments that I have made as pastor, as husband, as father, as friend, as owner and operator of things, right? The commitments, the bills I have to pay, the accountabilities, the promises that I've made, the covenants that I've entered into, but it's the very thing that gives dimension and contour and meaning to my life. Commitment makers and commitment keepers experience this freedom, and it is paradoxical, but it is real, a freedom that commitment avoiders will never know. In 1 Kings chapter 19, there is this powerful picture of a commitment, a guy named Elijah. Uh, there's a college baseball player named Elijah who pa- apparently needed an Elijah, but this guy had it. And here's Elijah. Let me read the verse and explain it a little bit. So Elijah went from there and found Elijah, the son of Snapchat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elijah then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. You're already confused, aren't you? Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied, what have I done to you? Such an odd, edgy response from an old guy. So Elijah left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he set out to follow Elijah and become his servant." Elijah with a J is the older man. He's the prophet who is out in the field and he is watching, he has watched 11 uh, plowmen and their pairs of oxen pass him. And on the 12th, when he sees this young Elijah, he brings his cloak or in most versions say his mantle. I like that word better. He takes his mantle and he, he throws it over this young man. And the mantle for Elijah, the prophet, the older guy, It was a symbol of his office, of his life's calling, of God's um, journey for him, of his life's work. It's a big deal. It symbolized that. But yet he took it off and he placed it on this young man as a symbol. And the message is a clear one in that culture, a little obscure for us. But in that culture, it's saying, hey, God has something for you. God has a job for you and you need to, you need to get about it and you need to get about it now. You need to leave and you need to do what God is calling you to say. But Elijah, the young man, is thinking. Now, what would you be thinking in this scenario? I would think, okay, you're offering me a job. So what kind of days off? What are, the, what's the vacation plan? Is there a dental plan, right? And you're a prophet. So you want me to be a prophet? Is there some sort of profit sharing plan? Sorry. I just couldn't resist. I really regret that. 
But anyway, I would have questions about this new job of being a prophet. What's involved in it? But uh, Elijah, this young man, seems eager but reluctant. And so he says to him, I want to go. It was custom, odd for us, but I want to go kiss my mother and my father. Now, here's the thing. Elijah, with 12 pairs of yoke, these yoke of oxen, with these in his fleet, it meant then that he had stunning wealth. Elijah had a family, and it was royalty. There was a lot there. And so this odd, angry, edgy response from the old guy is curious for us. But you see, Elijah knew that this golden boy Elijah, if he went back home in all his wealth, all that he had, and this fleet and this stable of things, that he was a golden boy, that he could have any girl in the village he wanted. And if he were to go back to mommy and daddy, they would show him the trust fund and the vacation homes and the keys to the car and such. But Elijah does something really important. Important for any and all of us in entering into relational commitments. Elijah gives Elijah the freedom to choose. And it's this point that I want to share with you when it comes to commitment, if you could put that quote up. Any good commitment that will have strength to last must be freely offered. If there's manipulation, pressure, or emotional appeal, it's not a good commitment. Any good commitment that will have strength to last, stickiness, it must be freely offered. Because commitments come from the core of who you are. And if they don't, you'll crumble. And here, Elijah makes a decision. And he goes over and beyond in just three verses of this story I'm giving you. Elijah slaughters a couple of oxen. He takes the wood from the plows and develops a fire where he burns the meat. He says, hey, I'm having a banquet for myself. This is a big deal because I'm about to go. And what he did there is in many ways missing in our culture. He has a physical manifestation of a personal and spiritual commitment that he's about to make. And that's important. And I want to say to you, commitments are strengthened when we go public with those commitments. What can it be for you? For some of you, that next thing is baptism. You haven't done that. Jesus wants you to do that, and it honors Him, and it's a testimony to our church to do that, to take that simple step of obedience. You're scared. Just give me a call. We'll dunk you in the water. God will be honored, and we'll tell your story. Go public with that commitment, and that strengthens the commitment to go public, to make something physical that is personal and that is spiritual. So think of this when it comes to commitment, when it thinks about when we think about being one who is reliable, living with and committing to those who can be reliable, our lives not soon coming to ruin, but understanding that there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother, we are, as humans, as women and men, we're of equal worth in God's eyes, and we are the crowning jewel of God's creation. Animals themselves cannot make a commitment. Dogs can't make a promise. Have you ever thought about that? If they could, if they could make a promise, if they could, they would, and they would keep it, but they can't. Cats can't make a promise. If they could, they would, and they would break it. 
and they would smile at you with that evil, quiet, cunning cat smile, right? But animals can't do that, but you can. You can. And so the flow of life is this. A commitment is made. It's received in faith. And as the promise is honored, that faith is confirmed and intimacy is developed. That is life. Commitment is made. It's received by faith. As that promise is honored, the faith is confirmed and intimacy is developed. And so we have a lot of commitments in our lives. There is marital commitment. We talked about that in week one. One of my favorite writers talks about the exits out of marriage. And he says there's big exits and little exits. And big exits are betrayal, infidelity, abandonment. It's the big stuff. But there's also little exits in marriage. And the little exit looks like someone little is about to take an exit. But the little exits in marriage are the things like apathy and passivity, withdrawal, long stints of selfishness. It could be overeating, overworking. It could be being a shopaholic. It could be numerous things. It could be hiding yourself in your hobbies or in your work. They're little exits. But in marriage, the goal of marriage, we need to be reminded of this. And so let me, as the pastor, elevate our thinking in this regard. The goal of marriage is not to avoid divorce. The goal of marriage, listen to me, young couples. Listen to me, single people. Listen to me, some of you who it really isn't too late. The goal of marriage is not to avoid divorce. It's to pursue intimacy. And there is a marriage commitment where a commitment is made. It's received by faith. And as a promise is honored, faith is confirmed, and intimacy is developed. And there is family commitment. I love this quote from one writer. It says this about family. Family is. We all have definitions of family. It's being redeveloped in our society. Family is a group of people who are irrationally committed to each other's well-being. Now, as a pastor, I'm also a counselor. I get to talk with some of you one-on-one or in groups, and I love that. I cherish that. And I'm watching some of you irrationally commit yourself to the people around you. And can I just say, go for it. Hang in there. Stay with it. That's what a family is about. It's funny. Some of us boast that our company is like a family. Anybody work for a family? Anybody work for a company? We're like, hey, we're like family around here. Our company is a family. Now, I like the spirit of that. Can I just say that's a joke? Like, you don't understand family. You may work for a good company. It could be a great company. It could be a company that's built to last, but your company is not a family. If you're wondering whether or not your company is a family, do this. Don't show up to work. Don't show up until you get a pink slip. And then go see your supervisor at the company and say, say to him or her, you can't fire me, I'm family. And he or she will say back to you, no, 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 you're not family. You were family. Now you're fired, right? That's a company. And your company may practice some good family practices. It may have some things about it that make it warm and fuzzy for you. But your company is irrationally committed to profit, to the bottom line. But there's something different and ought to be different about a family. And it's this commitment to stay with each other forever. One day this week, I sat with three different young people. When you get my age, almost everybody's young, but these were late 20s, early 30s. And in one day, three people sat with me. 
and unpack their suitcase. And the common thread among all three stories is a results of living with a man and a woman who didn't keep their commitment, who didn't stay at it. And that seeps into the hearts of our children. Let His grace abound. Like, let His grace abound to every story in this room. But when we don't stay at it, it seeps into the hearts of our children. And it matters. Today in the balance, back to Proverbs 18.24, there's marriage commitment, there's family commitment, but there's friendship commitment. I love the way one writer, Henry Nowen, puts it, those who banish friendship from life seem to suck the sun from the universe. For we have no better delightful gift from God. Friendship. A closeness. A drawing together of hearts. Not just some suspension of hostility, not just a common interest around a sports team or school or something like that, but a friendship where one looks to the other and the other looks back to the other and there is this this design. There's this design to see God do His work in that life, as Paul would say to a young protege, he who began a good work in you, let him perfect it into the day of Christ, that we would have friendships to say, let's stay, let's stick it out, let's long for the best in each other. One writer refers to friendship as a sheltering tree. I love this. The sheltering tree of friendship. When life heats up, when it gets hard, when it gets hot, to have a shelter have a place where you can really go, a healthy place. Like some of you, you're running to an unhealthy place. You're running to unhealthy people. You're running to an unhealthy substance. Can I tell you to get, get help? Get help. But to have a sheltering tree is to have somebody, to have a couple, to have a few where you can go. And I want to say this as I thought about it today. In the sheltering tree of friendship, you will find at its root, there is a promise. There's a promise at the root of this sheltering tree. It's a commitment. I'm for you and you're for me. There's a type of bird, an Alaskan bird. They exist in other places of the world, but particularly in Alaska, there's a golden plover bird. And this golden plover, uh, you know, Apparently, birds aren't smart. Like, if you want to insult one of your friends, uh, you say you got a bird brain, right? Because birds, uh, most of them have very tiny brains, and they're not known necessarily for vast intelligence. They are known for great instinct. And the golden plover is smarter than most of us because in the summer, it lives in Alaska, and in the winter, it flies to Hawaii. A 2,800-mile flight that takes 88 hours And the bird, on average, flaps its wings 250,000 times, a quarter of a million flaps from Alaska to Hawaii. But there are no islands between Alaska and Hawaii, and these birds cannot swim. That's a commitment, isn't it? Like, they're all in. But in doing so, they fuel up. They're already sort of chubby birds. They get really chubby. They blowed up for the purpose of storing up enough fat to make it. There are no islands to stop at. It's a direct flight. They can't swim. And as they make this journey, um, they would only last about 72 hours, leaving them about 500 miles from Hawaii. This is amazing navigation, isn't it? Amazing instinct. You're going to fact check me later. I know it. But these golden plovers, they form 
of V formation. You see, they know that they can make it. They know they can go the distance because of their companions. And they form a V-shaped formation. And the leaders, they rotate leaders. It's not a it's, it's not dominated by one, but there is one leader out front at first. And the leader, when he grows tired, he falls back and another one takes its place. He falls literally to the back of one of the sides of the V formation and they make it all the way. And they make it because they've got their boys. They got their gals, they got their tribe, they've got their comrades. And that's how God has designed you. So some questions as we close. Are you seeking community? Are you you seeking it? When I was young and single, I moved to Miami. And I was a follower of Jesus. I was committed to ministry, not within the local church, but parachurch ministry. I worked with college students and had a couple of roommates. And the verdict was still out on them. But I was looking for some friends because it was a new life in a new land. And I went to church. And I sort of picked a church pretty early early on. I didn't want to shop around too much. And I would come late and I would sit in the balcony. uh, Tough day to sit in the balcony. I would sit up in the balcony and I would leave a little bit early. And I really wouldn't talk to people. And I remember at times thinking, this church is large. It's hard to build community. It's so big. And then it dawned on me one day, what am I seeking and what effort have I made? And can I tell you, it grieves God's heart when we're not seekers of friends, when we don't actively pursue it. Are you seeking friends? What Jesus said in Matthew 7 about prayer and about life, ask, seek, and knock. If you ask, you'll receive. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, the door will be open. That is so true. Can I tell you? And anybody lonely in the room, can I tell you that's so true in this area of friendship? Ask, seek, and knock. There was a time in this city when I made a commitment to be a seeker. And God honored that to this day. And some of the richest friendships, they're long distance, but some of the richest friendships in my life are because of that season. Are you seeking friendship, community? Are you preserving it? Are you preserving it? Are you fighting for it? Or is your life characterized more by fighting with people? Are you building it? Are you preserving it? And are, are you allowing it to be disrupted? Some of you, you've got a little click. You got your two or three or your group or whatever. And can I just say to you to follow Jesus when you already have community is to allow that community to be disrupted. Don't hold on. Don't say us four no more. Shut the door. Be open to what God has for you. Let that community be disrupted. There have been times when I've done that. I'm like, no, nobody else. Nobody else in the sanctum here. No one else in the inner world. I don't have room for it. And then I've realized God had somebody else in my life that he was bringing in expressly designed for my future. Allow your community to be disrupted. Are you seeking it? Are you preserving it and building it? And are you allowing it to be disrupted? One who has unreliable friends will what? What does the proverb say? We'll quote it, church. We'll, okay, okay. We'll soon come to ruin. Do that at lunch, would you? And just make me feel better or send me a text with a verse today. I feel better about myself. You'll soon come to ruin if you have unreliable friends. But there is a, there is a friend 
who sticks closer than a brother. When I was growing up, we sang a song about the friend that we have in Jesus. A friend who is committed to you. In fact, one of the brilliant minds of the New Testament, one of the early church planters would say, Apostle Paul says that when we are faithless, he remains faithful. And as we come to communion to the Lord's Supper, to the table today, I know that some of you are probably having to ask the question, what if I haven't been reliable? What if I've broken my commitments? Can I just say to you, you need to do the next right thing. And you probably don't need a pastor, a counselor, somebody to tell you what that next right thing is, right? Because you've broken a commitment. You haven't been reliable. So you know who's been hurt. Do the next right thing. Make the call, have the conversation. Own it. Own it, own it, own it. Take responsibility. And do the next right thing. There is a myth. Oh, a lack of commitment is the pathway to freedom. That is a myth. The truth is that promise makers and promise keepers experience a freedom that's not known by promise avoiders. And His promise to you is His love and forgiveness of sin. We fight and we quarrel, we skirmish, we have angry altercations. But we have a God who calls us into this gospel of peace. I want to ask you with me this morning to stand. In a moment, I'm going to pray over us and give you instructions to the table. I want you, if you would, to bow, if it helps you to bow and to close your eyes. It may help you focus. It may not. But assume a posture where you can focus. And would you, vertically, before Him today, ask Him, what commitment am I afraid of? What am I afraid of committing to? Who am I afraid of committing to? And ask God to shatter that. Ask God to give you the gumption to do the next right thing. If it's a recommitment, if it's an apology in a marriage or a family, or as we're talking about today in a friendship, would you do that? Would you own it? Would you say that you're sorry? We have watched a family unravel. Friendships have been affected because of a lack of ownership. A lack of being willing to re-up a commitment. And there's damage and hurt and collateral damage there. Pray that Jesus would conform you, transform you to be a covenant maker and a covenant keeper. It is who He is. It's who He is. Jesus, thank You that You who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God. Lord, I am unrighteous. I have a bent towards sin. 
I'm like a sheep that turns its own way and wanders astray. But I thank you that we have a shepherd. A good shepherd, a great shepherd who calls us back to the land where we can feast. The land where we can know your shelter. The land that we can share together with close friends. Lord, I thank you that I know that you're deepening friendships in this room and making this family a family of faith where we can connect. Strengthen those ties. God, I thank you that we're drawn together not by anything shallow, but by the deepest of the deep. By the good news of the gospel story that we've been forgiven. That you died in our place. That your body was broken and your blood was shed for us. And as we do monthly here, Lord, I thank you that we can now worship at your table. As we stand, as we take steps, as we follow the person in front of us and take the bread and dip it into the juice. We're reminded of what you've done for us. A very simple, earthy, ordinary act. But it has spiritual significance, transformative power. Lord, we can forgive because you've forgiven us. We can love because you love us. We can bear with one another because you, Lord, have shown forbearance to us. In Jesus, we pray. Amen.